and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two thirty-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with rare item drops. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, released on the Nintendo Switch in 2020. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined by my friend Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we will explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter. In this episode, we're getting into chapter four. Nate, how's it going tonight? It's good. I really enjoy this chapter. I have some notes that will make it sound like I didn't enjoy myself, but I uh, really enjoyed myself. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to chatting about it. Me too. This was this was a good chapter. This was good. This is exciting to talk about. Before we get into it, I wanted to um, highlight that we've got a kind of our little a little media organization that we've developed for ourselves here. So you know us as Hero with a Thousand Potions, but we've developed this thing called Gunblade Guys. Yes, it's a very appropriate name based on the first kind of spark conversation that uh, hit things off for us. If you listen to our first episode, we talked about our Cypher action figure Mm -hmm. because a lot of people, we've all played similar video games, but that was an element of like uh, enthusiasm dialing into what we loved. We both bought the same exact action figure of the same exact character. Uh, So that was something that resonated with us. And we kind of kept dialing into things we had in common, similar experiences we had, similar games we played growing up. That was uh, the inspiration for that title. Uh, we're working on some branding. I've been drawing some gun blades, some mechs, things like that to give us an identity. But it's really to put things under umbrella so that we can expand beyond just talking about RPGs when we feel the need to do so. Recently, we recorded an episode that was had nothing to do with RPGs. So we felt like we should probably have a bigger umbrella to do more varied content. For example, if we wanted to ever just play a game together and put that video online for the fun of it, wouldn't really fall under the umbrella of a thousand potions necessarily. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so look forward to maybe more content from, from, Gunblade guys. Well, you you can abbreviate it as GG. So take that to mean whatever you want. Mm-hmm. For me, I I like that it's a good game as well. So that kind of tells you what I'm thinking is just positivity about playing video games. Before we get into this chapter, I wanted to address a couple things we talked about in chapter three. One of them was that uh, I said that I wasn't sure if it was Metal Face or a new-faced Mechon at the end of Chapter 3. After playing through this chapter, we can confirm that that was not Metal Face. Uh, it was a new Mechon. Also, you and I, Tyler, we had a little bit of a discussion of whether Colony 6 was the last Hom colony. I went back and looked at the footage, and I have a quote, Colony 6, the only other Hom's colony left. Is it really? Yep. Shulk said that as they were setting out on their journey from Colony 9 in the beginning of Chapter 3. I don't know what you think about that. What do I think about that? Well, the verse, as in universe, is a lot smaller than I thought it would be. And I kind of wondered, 
maybe we'll get into it a little bit later, but I kind of wondered, you know, where these folks kind of migrated to. Colony 6 is higher up the leg than Colony 9 is, which makes you wonder where did they originate in? Is it the heart? Is it the head? Is it the is it the sword? We, we don't really know, but it seems like people are migrating. Human Homs are migrating uh, downward. And it makes me think what colonies one through five were those previous Homs colonies that were wiped out or are they colonies developed by other organic races that we just haven't learned about or interacted with we've interacted with no bond but maybe there's more otherwise i'm inclined to believe that life as a Hom has not been easy on bionis long term i also from viewing the progression of these places i originally thought that the locations that we visited were based on if you look at where bionis stands on the world that it's positioned on there would have to be some locations where you're just vertically running i'm wondering now if bionis's mass is great enough to have a gravitational pull to where homs can literally live on any part of the body I'm more curious about that now when I think of all the other locations of colonies and what you just mentioned, where did they originate from? Because my previous perception of it, the locations that would be viable to live on would be very limited. But now I have to think that Bionis is massive enough to have kind of horizontal gravitational pull to where you could be living on its upright chest and have your feet on the ground so to speak that's a really good question i suppose we'll find out as we ascend uh, bionis here it isn't you know we don't really know at this point so the chapter begins with ryan and shulk on kneecap hill kneecap hill is where we were spied on by the drone or droid uh, mechon that went and ratted us out to the other faced mechon at the end of the previous chapter Ryan says, I love a good climb because there's a little bit of climbing ahead of us. He climbs up a bit of a pre precipice to get to the other part of Kneecap Hill. Kneecap Hill is Bionis's kneecap. As we ascend Bionis, we're seeing that there's the, the, the geographical regions of this continent have body part names. Now, I don't know if Tephra, like as in Tephra K from a previous episode, is the name of something in the interior of your shin or something but this is kneecap hill and we're headed to the bionis leg we do a bit of climbing and then uh, before we get into the next area there is a glowing orange ball of light with small holographic rectangles hovering around it and one of our heroes says let's poke it and see what happens and we walk into it and we just disappear yeah, we disappear. We are transported to a shrine, a temple of sorts, where uh, in our view, we are greeted by a Nopon. We've met a couple Nopons in uh, Colony 9. Nopons are that... those, we, we've been calling them choo-choos. I call them clefairies. They're these diminutive mascot, super cute, cabbage leaf wearing, intelligent species that coexists with Homs on Bionis. Yes, and from the looks of things, I had this feeling, the way they highlighted this character central to my vision upon arrival, that I have entered the Choo-Choo-verse. This huh. is a place where Choo-Choo reigns supreme, and the laws of physics and life are dictated by the Choo-Choo ways. 
or Nopon, if you prefer that, uh, we meet the Nopon Archsage, and he has some interesting propositions for us. Namely, that if we would like to do battle, and he observes it, we can take on special trials of combat situations at various locations that he teleports us to in order to gain rewards. Now, as I have stated previously, this is our first blind playthrough, so we don't know if this feature existed in the original Xenoblade Chronicles for Wii, but when I looked it up, I'm inclined to say no, because apparently the first instance of this character existing was in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 for Nintendo Switch. So I might do a little research on that again, but uh, from the limited research I did, I don't see this character existing in the original version. So this is kind of like a DLC edition built into the game, I'm, I'm guessing. When we appear in this place, it's we're in the center hall of this enormous temple. There's stone pillars and arches all about. There's a like a sarcophagus in the center of the room, like like a stone sarcophagus. And uh, and I looked around in this area, and if it's daytime, you can look up and see that you are below Sword Valley. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice where we were. So, yeah, we are in an actual physical location in the world and not transported off to some distant world of some kind. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that that this was a remaster feature for this game again can't absolutely confirm it but our, maybe by our next episode i'll grab some definitive evidence on that it, i just kind of stumbled upon that detail as we were preparing for this episode so cool. uh we'll see we'll update that next time uh for this the reward that we get for doing these trials is no pawn stone and that there's several rewards he has waiting for us if we collect enough Nopon Stone. I look forward to someday being able to afford the Exotic Collection, as it's called. It belongs exclusively to Rhine, or once I acquire it, I can only equip it to Rhine. What that Exotic Collection tells me is that apparently Rhine has yet to become a, quote, real man, unquote because he doesn't have this collection. But if I read the description of the glasses, it says, real men use these for reading. The chess piece, go-to summer wear for real men. The watch, real men never leave home without it. The bottoms, real men wear them short. And sandals, real men choose wood. So this so, is like a Italian Riviera custom skin for Ryan. I believe it it gets into the beachwear theme that I've seen in some places oh like when God. playing when playing Super Smash Brothers, you can get Shulk a costume that is just him in beach shorts instead of uh the Shulk costume. Did you do any of the time attack challenges? Yes, I did do the time attack challenges and I have some observations about them. There's a free mode that has a level 20 challenge for my now level 17 characters. It being a free mode, I am able to approach it however I see fit with whatever tools I have at the moment. So right now I have two characters. I revisit this later when I had three characters, and those details don't change. You're just the challenge is the challenge, and you have to approach it however you want to. There's also a set mode that makes me level 20. 
and my enemies level 20. So when I approached both of these challenges, kind of the same challenge, but with different parameters, I was able to do the one that is a set level 20, but I was not able to complete the level 20 challenge on my level 17 characters in the free mode. Yeah, me neither. So this kind of outlines a method by which the game handles levels, stats, scaling, and difficulty, um, and the elements that dictate that. The game uses a method of scaling to put enemies that are over-leveling you out of your range to be able to kill. Now, most people see scaling as a method of bringing characters out of your level to your level, but it, it works both ways. So when I approach enemies in this game that are several levels above me, I just straight up cannot hit them. So as a level 17 doing this level 20 challenge, I could not hit my enemy. Now later, when I redid this challenge with level 20 characters, there's waves. And along the third wave, I believe it was, they spawned in level 25 enemies. Did which they really? I, I never got that far. Yeah, yeah, which again, I'm now level 20 doing a level 20 challenge and I cannot hit the enemy. It's uh, I'm missing 90% of my attacks. I can whittle them down with various attacks, but most of the time you're missing everything. So this is a means to, it fights the game having HP bloat, um, damage bloat, things like that, because instead of having to scale up stats and damage and everything ridiculously with every level to make levels matter, the way levels matter is by essentially gating content from you of if you're level 17, you're going to have a shitty time doing levels 20 content because of this restriction, right? Alternatively, I was just playing Final Fantasy 12, which doesn't do this. They use just inflated stats and inflated damage. An example of this, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I really enjoy it, is that Final Fantasy 12, when they introduce a new character, they put the new character at the level of your average party level. There's a brief moment at the beginning of the game where you are only Vaughn. So if you run around and never meet Pinello in the Oasis in Giza Plains, any levels you game on Vaughn will be the level that characters are introduced at when you get them. So there's a strategy to run around and level up Vaughn and kind of cheese him out, get the best items, hunt for the best items and best gear you possibly can at that point in the game with the areas available to you. And then you go hunt werewolves in Giza Plain. The werewolves are incredibly hard, but you, even if you're five levels, four levels, or ten levels below them, you can still hit them, and you can still do minuscule amounts of damage. But if you have this other gear that helps you along, you can eventually kill them and hopefully survive doing one of them you'll get a huge experience boost and you can grind those werewolves all the way up to level 45 to 50 if you see fit. Jeez, is that, that allow... really, is that really time efficient though? It's time efficient if you don't ever want to have to level characters later in the game because every character you get will be introduced to you at level 50, 55, 60 as you're progressing, right? So it's a little bit of a trick, but the main thing to take away from that is 
I just hopped back into the game today with a party I had from a, about a 10-hour save file, and I didn't do this cheese strat. I took the four of them, and I went and tried to kill a werewolf, and they do damage to a werewolf seven, eight levels above them, but they are eventually whittled down by the fact that the werewolves have such high HP, and they do so much damage that you cannot triage your way through the fight you will eventually run out of resource and just get your ass beat right so there's no artificial methods of gating you from killing this thing other than the fact that stats inflate at an incredible level in that game to the point where end game bosses have millions of health so xenoblade is not doing that they are using a different method to keep stats rubber banded into a smaller window if that makes sense it leaves a it leaves the game making a lot more visual sense. You don't have to have giant numbers flying across the screen. You don't have to have things just getting out of hand to ridiculous levels in late game. But what it does is playing these kinds of experiences that we're doing with the Note Bond Challenge. It, it's unsatisfying when you enter into combat and you miss ninety percent of attacks. There's a tactile level of disappointment of just. I'm not doing anything. Whereas in another game where I'm hitting and I'm being overpowered by my enemy, there's a much more visceral feedback loop there of, I know why I'm losing. And it's not because of an artificial factor. It's because of a very tactile response of getting my ass beat. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense or what you think about that. That, that does make sense. And it disincentivized me to explore this new feature of the game i mean i completed one fixed battle uh but shulk died to the free battle three times in a row and so i basically just quit i didn't earn enough no pawn stone to trade anything it was level 20 recommended but my team is level 17 and if you remember from previous episodes i am not geared but now but and, uh, but here's the chance to be geared you know to, to to really you know min max your party and do something that's very you know, uh, battle intensive in the way that, in a way that the game hasn't been, as we've been walking through this story here, the battle, the boss battles have been fun, um, and leveling up and exploring and questing has been fun, but if you really want to, you know, um, test your metal, it seems like this, uh, this Temple of the Arc Sage is, is the way to go. Yeah, and I am geared, and I also got my ass kicked because of that phenomenon of just well it doesn't matter how geared you are you cannot hit this enemy uh 90 of the time so failed initially came back when i was level 20 and was doing fine until i hit that wave that had level 25 enemies i was like oh yeah can't do this either i eventually won that battle but it took forever and i got a terrible rank because of it yeah so with enjoying more the world content i feel like to bring up final fantasy 12 again i enjoy how that game handles it has challenge modes in the form of hunts and you can kind of take them on well before you're prepared to as far as your level and uh resources things you have access to and the thing i like about that is some of those you can actually tackle with really sound tactics and attention to detail in those fights they're super hard, yet you can still do them if you're willing to put in the grit <laughs> to get it done, you know. Uh, so that's something I enjoy doing. To each their own, I'm sure some people like the fact that it's like, I just have to go level up. 
to prepare for this battle. Mm -hmm. I think I fall in that camp. And so if you don't mind holding up that end of the content exploration, that is perfectly fine with me. Sounds good. All right. So because this is a optional sort of feature of the game, we were able to pop in and out of this portal uh, to the Temple of the Ark Sage um, at our leisure. And we will see more of these portals um, over the course of the game. We'll see another one a little bit later in this chapter. As we hop back into the Bionis Knee, um, we continue down the path and it opens up into Gower Plain. It's a, and Gower Plain is the Bionis leg. Now, you have to visualize the position that Bionis was in when it died. And it's in this pose in which its knee, or excuse me, in which its thigh is at a is in a horizontal angle it's kind of not crouching but like a like a, a if, if you can imagine like a swordsman swinging a sword sort of horizontally at shoulder level he's kind of got his knee bent a, a, at a perpendicular angle uh, on the knee and you know when he's swinging the sword and of course the sword is making contact with Mechanus on the other side um and so with that leg being horizontal we are treated to this massive Plain. It's a verdant field that is multiple in-game miles long, possibly 10, maybe 15, I don't know. It is a very large zone. Green grasses, soft rolling hills, and above, enormous partial arches made of rock and draped in vegetation. They're kind of like broken land bridges. And there's a very much like what we saw in Colony 9, there are these large red rock cliffs um, all over. It is a beautiful, wild, exotic landscape. It reminds me of Nagrand from Wild Burning Crusade. It is, it is idyllic, although wild. It is peaceful, although, you know, untamed. It is a really pretty zone. This zone is spectacular. It's funny you mentioned Nagrand Burning Crusade because I have the sighting of a level 81 giant monkey, also known as a Rot Bart, roams the area uh, that you need to stay clear of. It reminds me of the Fell Reaver of Hellfire Peninsula in The Burning Crusade. But but there was a uh, what was his name? But in the Grand, there was an equal. There was a similar enormous creature roaming the Grand by that large crystal. Son of Grand? No. What was that dragon killer monster thing? I think it's Gron or something. Gron, sure. And, and he does kind of look like, that That territorial rapper does kind of look like it. Let's talk about the the fauna of Gower Plains. So there's Ardens, they're like, they're like Triceratopses. There's Flanets, they're like Flamingos. Ponios, which are zebras, but they're striped in brown and bronze and they have a rhino horn. I'm glad you mentioned the territorial Rotbart. Um, there's Pyranaxes, which are like piranhas. They're, they're called leg Pyranaxes. Not that they have legs, but that they're from the leg region of this world. And lest we forget, the Turkin tribe are a breed of turkey warriors. They are, they're diminutive. They're small, like no ponds. I think they're as big as turkeys are. They're semi-intelligent, that maybe they're savage. A savage 
race, a savage tribe, and there's a variety of quests related to slaying certain things about them, and they're distributed throughout Gower Plain in a couple different areas. And and I really like these guys. I, I mean, I liked the, the, the bunnets with the fist in their tails and whatever else they managed to grab and hold in it. Um, but these Turkins, um, they, they're cool. I, I can't think of another game in which they've um, they've villainized turkeys. <laughs> We we get close in Zelda. There's a desire to hit that chicken, and then the chickens retaliate. And when you enter this area, there is a man with a Monster Hunter quest dump that wants you to basically kill every living thing in this area. You get about five, six quests to murder animals. Uh, so it, it, they want you to engage it. They want you to explore the whole place and see everything you can. This area, with the openness of it, the freeform objectives for the most part, the sight lines to Bionis and Maconis hanging above in the sky. If you can imagine getting this game, let's say it was on PS1 and they could pull off an area like this, this would be the location that was on your Pizza Hut demo disc to catch, <laughs> get people to want to play this game because you wouldn't start it off necessarily, in my opinion, with the Colony 9 area. You would start it out with this area and just say to the player, look at everything you can do. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because when we when we turn the corner in this mountain path and Gower Plains opens to us, we see a bit of smoke in the distance and Ryan and Shulk speak with one another and they go, S smoke? A, a campfire? This seems like a strange place for a campfire. Maybe, you know, let's let's go check that out. And so, um, so we progress towards this smoking area of the map as we're completing these quests along the way. A couple things of note is that I am collecting insanity mints like crazy. I don't know if these mints help cure insanity or they cause insanity, but knowing the history of the Xeno series and people with mental issues, I hope that they cure insanity and that I'm holding on to them for the duration of the game for a moment where I may need them. Oh, sure. If we know anything about Xeno games, we know that insanity isn't simply caused by a mint. There's there's a 150-page uh, text on the backstory of how people arrive at their insane state, and it isn't mm -hmm. so easy as picking up a, a sprig of mint off the ground. Uh, running around, I get visions of me completing quests before I even know I have the quest. Uh -huh. So I can I can pick up an item and then I get a vision. Oh, I'm going to need this for this guy's quest later. It's a really interesting detail because they could just have me pick up the item like every other item. And there's even other quests where people need resources like I need this flower or I need some boar meat, you know? And you just give it to them as you get the quest. It's interesting that they now are highlighting Shulk's ability, the naturalness of which he receives his visions. It's not strenuous, it's not under extreme duress, it's not like going Super Saiyan for the first time where 
you just have to be in this state. You know, he's he's accessing this pretty free form. It, it speaks to me about the difference between him utilizing the Monado and Dunbin. Dunbin always struggled with it from every account that we've seen of him using it. Shulk is a natural. He's now, in everything he's doing, he's got this flow of Monado-inspired abilities. Also, in Garplane, I'm going to make the assumption that the dense grass is not present on the original week because it's pretty gorgeous running around here. The atmosphere and effects and everything they did is feels modern to me and it, it's surprising that it looks so good on the Wii. Now I know there's a lot of trickery there and that they're using a lot of more painted effects and simplicity in utilizing vibrant graphics over realistic graphics but hey if it works it works. I prefer games that know their visual style and pull off a very fluid experience over ones that are trying to push the boundary of graphical prowess. Is this the location on the cover of the game box? I believe so. And that kind of leans into my Pizza Hut demo thing of, you know, this area to me is the first time where I could tie this to the identity of the game. This this is different than most RPGs we've or single player RPGs we've played in the past PS1 era, even the PS2 era. For example, Final Fantasy X on the PS2 purported to be more of a uh, open world game because it didn't use world maps. You were exploring areas live, but it was still kind of on rails, right? So this is a leap forward in JRPG tech for the time, I believe. Even playing 12, which came out a little bit before this game, uh, that used these little sequestered off areas. As big as the map was, you were always running into a little dotted gate that would bring you into a separate area as well. I would I would definitely highlight this area on the box, in the demos, in the promotional materials. Every chance I could get, if I was making an ad for it, I would just show Shulk running around this giant open world, spinning the camera around to look at everything. Saying something of like, look at that mountain over there. You can go there. You know, this was this was before Breath of the Wild was a thing by a good ten years, eight years or so. so. What? A, that's a very interesting point. My goodness, is this area a breath like before Breath of the Wild? We can't climb on things to that degree, but the closest thing to it was uh, what was the name? The Calm Lands in Final Fantasy X. Okay, that was that was pretty barren. You know, there mm -hmm. weren't a lot of features. There weren't a lot of mountain passes. It was just a big, wide open, grassy plain that you get in random battles on. So to have this place be alive with wildlife and features, I even found a little cairnstone, what I think is a grave made out of like machine parts or makeshift trinkets with no real explanation of what it was and it just showed me that this place has a lot of life and detail breathed into it so i love it this is a really great zone it's very very cool it's very pretty nicely done everybody before we get along to the narrative component uh, i thought i'd notice i thought i'd share that we're treated to another feature of the game which are surprise quests i don't know if you ran into this one 
Did oh you... yeah, I did. Was there a woman being attacked by wolves? Yes, um, we see. Yes. We, we we run into some action that's taking place, sort of serendipitously. A a hom girl is attacked by wolves. V u l f s. Those are of course wolves with, I guess the German v. And, yeah. and we're sp spontaneously, you know, uh, treated to a quest, and of course we save the the girl, and so that's a new neat feature from our quest log. I like that because it encourages you to go beyond the bounds of, you know, well I have these quests, and I'm just going to go to these areas. Now I'm feeling like I need to discover every area of the map, do a loop, make sure I've seen every little locale, just to make sure I'm not missing anything. I like that. My only gripe of grinding out quests and battles out here is that I'm noticing the redundancy of combat dialogue. The one that keeps hitting me, it made me laugh the first few times and now it's grating on me a little bit, is the Shulk says, you're really getting into this, Ryan. And his response is, I'm really feeling it. All right, I'm feeling it. <laughs> Hear, <laughs> hearing that a good dozen times. Uh, it gets a little grating. The other one is line says something along the lines at the end of a battle, like, Hey, did anyone see that? No, no one. And then he sounds all dejected. And I don't know, it, it's a nice little flavor, but they should have used it a little bit more sparingly. I feel the same. Those interstitial quotes uh, that we get in the middle of battle and, and, and at the end of battle are we hear them a lot. We really do. Yeah. Brianna and I, my wife, uh, we have a couple known quotes from Final Fantasy 15 that have been repeated ad nauseum after playing 60, 70 hours of that game in her presence. So I always quote Ignis. Uh, he always says, indeed, at the end of every statement. So I always say it like that to her when I answer her questions, because I know how annoying it is. And then also I quote Noctis saying, it's bedtime every time he sets up camp. I say that to my son at bedtime. It's bedtime. So you, you may not think that these little uh, combat dialogues, world dialogues can have an effect on you, but years after you're done playing the game, they're still there lodged in your brain. And you're still saying them. Has that yep. happened to me? I'm trying to think. Have I internalized any quote where I just say them? In Final Fantasy VII, near the end of the game where you're descending down the northern cave to fight Sephiroth for the final time. I already know what you're going to say. Let's mosey? Yep. Yes. Yes. I say, yes. I say let's mosey unironically. Shout out to Tim Rogers' uh, Final Fantasy VII translation series titled Let's Mosey. A slow translation. Is that a book? It is a YouTube series where Tim Rogers, video game expert, plays through Final Fantasy VII in English and Japanese at the same time, and then compares them. He is a he lived in Japan for ten years and speaks several languages, so he gives commentary on the nuance of episodes of failed translation within the Final Fantasy VII script. Are you trying to tell me that Let's Mosey is an example of failed translation? Yes, and it's there's several examples of the game having a little bit of the translator's personal nuances reflected into the the, the American script. I guess that's how it goes. I I own the 
Legends of Localization book about Earthbound. And it goes into, because Earthbound is a very localization heavy game with a rather big script for a Super Nintendo game. And so I've become increasingly interested in the nuances of localization. And so I should check out that 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 uh, video series. Yeah, I enjoy hearing about that Resonant Arc's recent series on Xenogears, which started this whole thing for us of really enjoying this format of playing through a game together. That one of their commentators does a lot of translation, also knowing Japanese uh, comparison of translation and meaning. Hugely fascinating to me. I love hearing about it. So we are looking for that smoke signal in the distance, and as we near it, we find out it's not a campsite at all, but it is a ruined buggy. So as there are machines in Colony 9, seemingly other Homs are out here in the plains using their own types of machines, uh, barring the irony of being at war with machines, but also using them at the same time, the buggy has been ruined. Shulk receives a vision of the buggy's owner under attack uh, by some sort of waterfall uh, lake area and is compelled to help them because as we discussed regardless of how we play shulk shulk is the hero he's a great guy he wants to help everybody so receiving that vision of a stranger in danger prompts shulk to prompts ryan and shulk to go on another quest to help this hom What's the danger? What was the danger? Is it uh is it a mechon? He's being chased by triceratopses. Oh, yeah, sorry. And I got to ask myself like what what made Shulk trigger this vision? I think it was by like touching the buggy. So it's where do these visions come from? It's very compulsory is it is it looking at somebody and seeing, "Oh my god, they're going to die in the next 10 seconds." Is it touching a ruined mechanism and seeing where it's most recent operator is and what sort of peril he's in right now the rules of the it's a video game the rules of the monado are interesting and complex and flexible and there's a lot of applications it begs a question because you know we're picking up quest items and receiving visions of where to take the quest items we're touching buggies and shown people in need we believe we're wielding the Monado, but this kind of makes me think the Monado is wielding us. I'm glad you mentioned that because the Monado does everything. The Monado provides exposition. It tells. It, it produces story story points. It has a lot of battle mechanics. So much. Like I don't like. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what Shulk has to do with it because so far it seems like the Monado itself is carrying the story forward sometimes, and Shulk's just kind of along for the ride. You remember that scene in in I think it was Chapter One, where Ryan is he grabs the Monado and he's being thrown all around the the laboratory in, in Colony Nine here, and as the story is playing out in a more macro sense, Shulk has a little more command of it, but in some respects. He's in the same sort of position. Yeah, it's a narrative tool. Uh, it gets into the territory of characters that don't have agency because we believe we're on this quest for revenge to go hunt down the Mechon. A lot of, if we were to do that, we would just be marching, we'd hop up on the sword and march over to Mechon land and drop a nuke on him. But a lot of these instances of meeting people, helping people, going where we need to go, it's. Monado led. So 
there's there's an element of our characters are kind of having their actions dictated to them or being pulled along a string. Now there's if it's never explained or there we never get the revelation that the Monado is sentient and guiding our path and our actions and everything. That's gonna feel a little unsatisfying. But if there is a story element to all of these things that are happening, the uh, purpose behind it, then. I, you know, I can see it working out. So we find that body of water and we find the boy and we find the triceratopses. They're Ardens technically, but they're gigantic. And so we battle them. It's like a mini boss encounter. There's boss music. And, and I really like the music of this particular boss encounter because there's this, the, the bass, it, it's kind of like a rock and roll song. And the bass guitar has this chugging, line to it. It, it it has this it has this rough texture that that really like trips my trigger i was jamming out out to it too uh i don't know if you watch video game donkey at all a few years ago i've seen a couple but i haven't kept up with them you've referenced him before in a previous episode yeah my wife and i we watch a lot of his videos he always makes a point to when <laughs> when a game has a like groovy or funky soundtrack he just stops what he's doing and just references it or makes light of it in a very funny way so i, I was kind of like oh this is this would be right up donkey's alley this boss fight music because it's just slamming what's your favorite slamming track that surprised you in a game you know in a game in general i have to give it up to symphony of the night that's got some real just i don't know i can i can listen to that soundtrack just on its own all day I'll say this. You have to listen to the third birthdays soundtrack. It's a PSP game. It's a sequel to Parasite Eve, but not officially because they didn't have the rights to Parasite Eve anymore. So they just used their own original characters. It kind of sabotages the story and sucks in a way. But my God, the soundtrack is amazing. Is it really? Yeah. In my case, uh, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, which you can get on the Switch, has a boss battle called punch bowl and it is just about as good as any black mages prog metal jam oh i know i know uh i'm gonna have to go with the sonic 2 soundtrack for hilltop zone because to this day i will just sit and hum that to my kid because it's goofy and quirky and it makes a lot of funny noises in it and when i sing it it makes him giggle so it's got a it's got a nice baseline. It's got some whining tones to it. it. It's goofy all around, and I love it. So we fight these berserk Ardunes. They're not very challenging, although they are huge, and it is very cinematic. And we get to know the child that we saved. His name is Juju. He says his buggy short circuited, and Shulk fixed it, but it needed ether. Don't know what that means exactly. What Juju says is, if you have time, you should come back to our camp. And the group, and between Ryan and Shulk, they all think that's very sensible. This camp is near these stone posts near an oasis, and we'll enter it through the forest from there. Th those are the directions, at least. And so uh, we embark again, this time with, with a guest. So we find the hideout, and apparently we pushed the buggy the whole way, although we were walking around in the world. Like the cutscene has us escorting the buggy into the camp area, which I think is kind of humorous because I didn't see the buggy at all as I was looking for this camp. 
And mm-hmm. as we get there, we are waylaid by a woman with dark hair and brown skin. Although her skin isn't any browner than Ryan's now that I think about it. And she walks up to and recognizes Juju. She wears a red leather coat top over a blue shirt, brown gloves with black straps that go up to her elbow, gray utility short shorts, whatever that means, stylish black boots that go halfway up her thigh, and a pair of engineer goggles that are draped over her neck. She marches forward and she says, where have you been? And Shulk suddenly gets this death vision of her. Um, His eyes glow blue like we've seen a couple times before and we go back to a sepia tone vision somewhere out in the plains. We see these telescopic mechanical arms snatch. We see these telescopic mechanical arms bursting out of the ground and snatching this woman out of the air, followed by a faced mechon mugging the screen for a hot second. After the vision, we come back to reality, and this woman is chastising this young boy. Juju calls her Sharla, S-H-A-R-L-A, and Sharla thinks we came from Colony 6. Uh, we learn that she's Juju's older sister. Shulk asks, well, what happened to Colony 6? And they say, Colony 6 has been occupied by Mekon, and then she escorts us to the hideout. Yeah, and in their conversation, the fact that shulk tells them that colony nine was attacked as well that leads juju to think that maybe the mechon abandoned their occupation of colony six so they attacked colony six they were occupied a certain number of the citizens escaped to this encampment and now juju is thinking i want to go home and rescue the others because well, the Mechon attacked Colony 6, then they moved on to Colony 9. But, as we know, the direction of which the Mechon attacked Colony 9 and then left prompted them to go back to Colony 6. So, I, I have a feeling that with their jet-like capabilities, that these traversals between colonies is not nearly as strenuous for the Mechon as it is for us, and that they can kind of uh what's the word watch both lanes so to speak from a boba perspective they can double soak yes exactly that's pretty interesting yeah the the mycons seem like they can fly all over bionis no problem but i haven't seen any technology from bionis that looks like we can do anything anything even remotely comparable to them Yeah, Sharla refuses, citing a lack of intel. It's probably still dangerous to go in that direction. She's absolutely right. Makes complete sense what she's saying. A lot of the characters in this game have a optimism or confidence in their ability to affect change that really doesn't make sense to me. So, like, if you told me, hey, Nate, in your neighborhood, there's a wild howitzer tearing through the place go do something about it. I'm going to tell you what the hell do you want me to do about it? Whereas the characters of this world say, all right, sounds good. I'll go take care of that. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, the Even the initial quest, we talked about this a little bit of Shulk and Ryan being like, yeah, those Mechon just destroyed our whole town and nearly killed all of us. Let's go get revenge. That was a little bit far-fetched for me, that they didn't really have a plan or an idea of how they're going to enact that revenge. But now we have Juju saying, hey, our whole colony was just occupied and nearly destroyed by Mechon. I'm going to go back there and help people. It's like, you're a little kid. 
where does this confidence come from for all of the citizens of this world? I don't personally understand it, but it is a factor that we have to take into account. I think we're just lazy humans from the 21st century of planet Earth, whereas these folks come from a much more hard-bitten reality where maybe you're more enthusiastic to throw yourself into a into a cause where it might be life or death. Regardless, Juju, Juju's got a lot of a lot of gumption. He's got a lot of drive to him. This hideout is in a cave by a pond, and this pond resting in the middle of it is this large rusting mechanical structure. It's kind of cylindrical. It has turbines. Is it a jet engine? Is it a spacecraft? There are colony six refugees that completely encircle this lake and most have quests to give us, but nobody has anything to say about this vehicle. And contextually, we're going to go with it was their uh, escape. Oh, their escape vehicle. You know what my theory was? I thought we might, let's say in the next chapter after this one, we'll use it to go up to the next part of Bayana's. Oh, sure. A repair job. I, when you think about the uh, the escape pod, uh, C-3PO and R-T-D-2, they, they get out of danger, but they don't really know where they're getting out to. So I see this as, you know, a escape vessel or just a regular vessel for traversing. They loaded everybody into it. Hey, we're going to get out of here. But in the ensuing chaos, maybe it was damaged uh, or they didn't really know where to go. So they just picked the most secluded area they could find and maybe the leg was that for them it would provide them some sort of safe haven the denizens of this hideout are for the most part homs but there is a nopon or two one of one nopon named pama is a young choo-choo whose dot whose parents died in a colony six attack which we're going to learn about shortly and they say that they're afraid to sleep for fear of nightmares once we acquaint ourselves with this refugee camp inside the cave we speak with charla and she tells the story of the attack charla says that she fought at the battle of sword valley one year ago and so we didn't see her in the intro movie with dunbin and mumkar and dixon she was there or, or she claims to be at least um, Charla says a swarm of Mechon blackened the sky. They ate people and burned buildings. And we have Atheron, the colonel, to thank for that. And she also mentions this other character named Godot. It's G-A-D-O-L-T, but we'll say it Godot because that's how they say it. We learn from Charla that Colony 6 is attacked by Mechon and that these folks are refugees from that attack. Juju says, are, are you intending to go to Colony 6? And we say yes, and then Ryan says, I bet we can even get your colony back. And Shulk kind of checks him and says, that's maybe that's it's a pretty ambitious ask at this point. Although Shulk is very motivated to, to kick Mechon ass. Sharla then checks Juju and says, we cannot expose the camp to any more danger. Juju says, are you scared of the Mechon? And then Shulk has another sepia tone vision in which he sees a field of these mechanical tentacles um, and then he sees another glowing Mechon face. Ryan chastises Juju for speaking to Sharla in a cross manner. And Juju runs off to, I guess, go make dinner. Or at least that's the story. And Sharla says, Nate, Nate, we have to talk about this. Sharla goes, hey, Ryan, your behavior is very similar to Godot. I think Godot's her fiance or mm -hmm. something. And <laughs> Sharla's very responsive to Ryan when he behaves like Godot. This person we haven't met yet and i'm getting a sense that it could be even like a i don't know how i want to put it but 
it's forecasted pretty heavily. I have notes on this as oh, well. Oh, you do? Uh, I yes. have I have childish I have childish notes on this. Uh, she has a penchant for telling Ryan he reminds her of her uh, maybe dead boyfriend. We don't know yet. Oh, is he uh, dead? I don't know. He's the, the Colony Six is occupied. Do I don't. There's an air of sacrifice about Godot, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't know if he made the ultimate sacrifice or just a pretty sizable one by remaining behind, because that is what they did. So this camp of people could get out. A number of them stayed behind to offer resistance. We have some affinity-locked cutscenes in that cave between Ryan and Sharla that I have not been able to access yet. I've been working on them, getting those oh. hearts up, pressing pressing B in combat to make everybody good friends. Even on their first meeting, Charlotte's face, she she walks up and talks to Ryan at a uncomfortably close distance from what I remember there in her introductory cutscene. Their dialogue about that connection of her saying, you know, you remind me of him, Ryan even responds to it. You know, a lot of stories, they'll... People will say things like that, and to keep it subtle, the other character won't respond. Ryan directly responds to her assertions, and then uh, Charlotte will mention something along the lines of, you know, Godot was like a father to Juju. And then Ryan says, I'm not ready to be a dad just yet, or something along those lines. It's like, mm-hmm. how did we even make that jump? You know, I, you know, like... We're already talking about Ryan being like a father to Juju because of a connection to Charlotte. I'm I'm a little lost on how quickly this sprung up between them. And then there's another little detail in combat where Ryan, when you get the party, I don't know if we're jumping ahead, but Charlotte joins your party, right? And she's a heel gunner. So it's her job to watch the other characters and fire off heal bullets to them. If, if you haven't experienced this before, think of Anna from Overwatch. Anna checking in. She's like Anna from Overwatch, which makes me yes. really excited. Uh, we talked a little bit about Heroes of the Storm in our side quest series. And Anna's my number one in Heroes of the Storm. And so, yeah, uh, he- Healer Sniper. Mm, 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 mm. I can get along with that real good. Yeah, so it's her job to be looking at the other party members and keeping them alive, right? During combat, Ryan will ask Sharla, hey, did you see what I just did? And I'm paraphrasing here, but the way she delivers her response is essentially something like, no, I wasn't watching you the whole time. And so to me, the voice acting and the lines, the way they're written and everything, it's pretty on the nose for me. So to the point where if these two don't end up hooking up by the end of the story, I'm going to be really surprised. Spicy. So Juju did not go to make dinner for his family. He fucks off with the buggy to go to Colony 6. Again, it's that confidence taking over. I don't know what Juju's got in that buggy, but I I would not be able to say, oh, well, the people with the weapons and the gear and the ability to kill the Mechon, the people that saved me from random animals out in the plains aren't coming with me. I better just go do it myself. That's a pretty big ask for me. It is a big ask. He's armed with a buggy, and I think we see him holding a rifle in, a, in another scene a little bit later. But he's going to go liberate Colony 6 by himself. Shulk gets another vision from the future, and he says, A deep valley. Everything's engulfed in flames. Juju 
dies. Ryan explains that Shul can see the future to Charlotte, who's very confused. He, he does a good job of explaining. He's like, I didn't believe it at first either, but hey, it's been working out pretty good for us. Uh, so th- there's typically these kinds of scenes can be awkward where there's a either you have to spend way too long trying to convince somebody in a world filled with magic that this particular kind of magic exists or you spend no time at all. I think this gives the appropriate level of we trust Charlotte trusts these characters through their mutual trauma and she's willing to just go along with it like, hey, that's pretty crazy. But you know what? You you're good guys helping out here, at least in your game. You've been helping out at that point. So, uh, yeah. So Shulk and Ryan set out to save Juju and Charlotte insists on coming with. And firstly, we decline, but then she insists. And because uh, Ryan can't say no to Charla, Charla joins the party. And we're introduced to buffs and debuffs, and holy crap, does sleep sound bad. Charla has one of has a sleep dart, which is almost exactly like Anna. And according to the tooltip, you become the target becomes incapacitated and all incoming damage crits. That's pretty crazy. I'm led to believe that maybe the developers of Overwatch, because this game came out first, Xenoblade, that the developers of Overwatch were fans of this character. They even kind of have a similar, like if you play Young Anna, there's a little bit of similar appearance there. Not necessarily the gear, but just the character itself, the hair color, the the skin tone, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's she's olive colored colored skin. Yeah, she's like a medic Mm -hmm. with a with a rifle. Yeah, you mentioned Ryan's reception to her. The it it was a quick shift. He he kind of had a little bit of a what I'd consider a sexist response initially of there's no way you can come with, you know, he may not say as much, but the implication is you're a woman. You can't come with us. We're the, we're the fighters. We're the men, you know? Um, And then she says, Hey, I, I can fight too. I heal with guns. And Ryan's immediate response is that's awesome. I'm always getting roughed up. So, you know, before he was mad that, or maybe not mad, but concerned that a woman would be coming along. But once he realizes that there's going to be somebody there to heal him so he can tank better, he's pumped. And, and that's that's particularly a very tank response is to uh, not want to party with somebody until you find out they're a healer. Then you're like, oh, man, we could, we could go get some shit done now. Let's go. Definitely. It was at this point when... When Sharla joined the party, that I switched playable characters to Sharla for the remainder of the chapter. Okay, I'm having a dumb moment then because uh, I didn't. You can switch your character. You can switch your character. You can't do it in the. You can't do it in the overworld. You do it in the menu, and you and you can only do it when you're outside of battle, as far as I can tell. Oh, okay. I've been Shulk this whole time, unless the game dictates otherwise. Uh huh. So according to Charlotte, I, I want to say Anna, but it's not Anna. So according to Anna, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so according to Charlotte, Juju and the buggy went off to Rogwell Bridge. Um, it was built at the time Colony Nine was founded, and we should go in that direction. And so we get to experience more of Gower Plains now. Despite crisis, my map is filled with side quests. Juju's life hangs in the balance, but 
uh, I have side quests to do, so yes, <laughs> that's the way it goes. Uh, the coming dawn, build the mini map with yet more daytime quests. I don't know if we've mentioned that before. The specific specificity of certain quests are only available during day. Certain quests are only available during night. So that again, as I had completed a batch of quests, that one uh, sent me out again. For another round of ignoring Juju's immediate needs. Yes, I did the same as well. Did not race over there. I encountered all kinds of other things and got into all kinds of other trouble. Gower Plains is a beautiful place, and it's really neat to explore it. Nate, did you did you find the secret area? Mm, I'm gonna go with the fact that you just said secret area. No, (laughs) because I there isn't an area that comes to my mind that speaks of secret. There is an observation platform that you can arrive at by walking through. It's like north central, if I'm recalling correctly, and you access it through a cave. And there are overpowered monsters on the way there. And if they have their backs turned to you, you can you can path around them. And I did. And I ended up getting to a secret area observation platform which had a teleportation point but the funny thing about it is is that when you teleport to it all of the enemy pathing resets and within about five or eight seconds of you teleporting to this observation platform a large hawk monster is flying towards (laughs) you and will aggro you and so as beautiful as this observation platform is, you don't have much time to stop and take a look around before you get attacked by something that that you're not equipped to fight. That's cool. I, one thing I notice is that as I gain this new character and I do all the quests and everything in this area, I'm drowning in gear upgrades and gear drops. I find that my previous chapter's statement of having more than enough gems... Where I said, you know, we, the gem crafting is cool, but I don't really need to do it. There's not a lot of need for gems. I'm getting so much from just doing everything. That statement is now completely false. I do not have enough gems to socket into all of the gear I have for the three characters in my party. Before it was Shulk and Ryan, I had maybe four, five gems total between the two of or five sockets between the two of them. Now every piece of gear has a slot on it, or two across three characters. So I don't have a gem forge at my disposal at the moment, and I need to get some more gems. There's a large creature we can't fight that's taking up a lot of space in the middle of this valley on our way to Raguel Lake. It's called Mount Torta. It's a giant sea turtle. This turtle is finned, like, like it's a sea turtle. It has flippers i'll I'll call it Mm -hmm. rather than you know terrestrial legs where's the sea there's no i haven't seen a an ocean yet anyways mount's tortoise floundering around out there and you've got to walk around it i stumbled upon a lot of instances of really high level enemies there are even some in outside of colony nine to the east originally it gives me the notion that we're going to be revisiting a lot of areas in endgame probably yeah farm various items and materials for an explosion of side quests that may be visited upon us. As we near Ragwell Lake, we see mechons. And we can fight them in regular battles. These mechons include the drone variation that we saw at the end of the previous chapter, and other ones that are more 
I guess, conventional, terrestrial, they walk on two legs sort of things. It's giving the sense of we have yet to find Juju. We have yet to see any sign of distress for him. How did he get past these? Is the buggy got some uh, mad swerve skills where he can just kind of Tokyo drift in between <laughs> each of the mech on attacks? I wonder. I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, how did he get there? Because there are some narrow paths to get through this bridge. This this lake, Ragwa Lake, has mushroom rock spires that come out of it. There's like 15 or 20 of them. It's very pretty, um, very unusual, very alien world-like. And when we... And when we get to the bridge that spans the lake, we discover the buggy. Shulk wordlessly scries the future on it like he did earlier, and he sees Juju being seized by these tentacles. Charles says there's a pass up ahead, and we will search along the road to find uh, to find Juju. The, the interesting thing is, uh, upon finding the buggy, Shulk now bears a confidence in his ability to gain visions. He reaches out towards the buggy this time. The first time it was accidental. This time he reaches out, touches the buggy in order to receive a vision. So he realizes the capability he has with this vision power and he's gaining control over it. So that that has a lot of implications for Shulk wielding the Minato's power and the understanding of it. It's subtle, but I think we'll probably see more of that moving forward. This would be a power that I would maybe abuse if I came to the realization that with a, with concentration and contact, I can scry the truths, the histories or futures of certain items. Now, again, this begs the question, is, is it only what the Monado sees fit to deliver to him? Could he go around touching everything, and if it's not relevant, the Monado's not going to do shit? Or can Shulk kind of command this? Can he go touch the the crashed uh, vessel in the middle of the uh, survivor's camp and find out what exactly happened, how it got there at his demand. I'm not sure, but it makes me think what I would do if I had this kind of power. I hope so. I hope he has a friend that asks him to go touch his furnace and see what's wrong with it. Or can you check on my car? I I can't tell if it's the alternator or the battery or or what. So with that vision, uh, we see this... The same vision has played out a few times now. We've got that repetitiousness that we've talked about in the past. The same thing was happening with Ryan in the Tepra cave. We're getting the vision of Starla being killed several times here. Shulk's asking himself if he can... He's thinking to himself, what ability does he have to change this? He, he's got that confidence now from the experience in Tepra cave that they're driven to move forward and prevent this uh, so with the with the buggy out of commission that they found they move on to the next area yeah it's called spiral valley it doesn't look like a valley it is a depression in the earth that has platforms that come off the ground and are suspended by the a double helix formation of rock kind of like a you know like a dna strand with with platforms uh, over it and we go there we find Juju and the Mechon who's abducted him. Rock music plays. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the vision that happened, it's all playing out very similarly, but as we'll learn, there's some details that are different at the moment, but there is a tangible sense of danger 
as we see uh, this Mechon assaulting Juju and probably us if we don't do anything about it in the moment. Shulk asks himself if he can change the visions that he's seeing. Another voice says, of course you can. A new power awakens within the Monado. To summarize it very simply, it's a speed slash evasion power. The Shulk is seeing ahead of time with visions of what's going to happen to him. He, he had the same ability back in Colony 9, but there's seems like it's granting a little bit of that perception to others in addition to increased speed. Uh, so this ability that awakens is able to be passed on to other members of the party, it appears like. We are attacked by these tentacles and... Sharla is under attack by some of them. She's about to be seized by them, and the Monado flashes blue. As you mentioned, Shulk acknowledges that a new power is awakened. A new kanji appears in the hilt, and Sharla dodges the tentacles, and there's this blue swirl of like wind energy around her, like a vortex, but very lightly. Not like, not like she's enveloped by a tornado. There's just light spell effects of, of wind encircling her. And so we've avoided her death vision. We were, we were able to change the future as, as Shulk saw it. And it also plays out as a new mechanic that we use in the boss battle, a haste buff, an invasion buff that uh, allows our characters to mitigate damage from not being hit. And I'm assuming, you know, this game's so fast paced that I didn't particularly notice it, but I'm assuming my attack rate is higher. Maybe my ability refresh rate is higher. I'll need to do a little bit of research on the full range of what this new ability does for us. But it is a new ability granted for gameplay reasons as well. Mm -hmm. It's called Shulk Speed, and and we're treated to a boss, like you mentioned. It's called Mechon M71, a jellyfish-like machine with an almond-shaped core with red glowing eyes, supported by three tripod-like legs that come out of the top of its head and then down into the ground in an arch. And then it has several mechanical tentacle-like appendages that can tunnel through the ground and burst out of the surface. Each of these tentacles have pincer-like grasping claws at the ends of them, and the tentacles themselves can telescope to a length of at least 150 feet, by my estimate. Um, Something I want to ask you, Nate, is when you were introduced to this speed ability, did the game pause? Did it did it stop to explain it to you and how you can facilitate the fight? Because I, I never got that for this boss battle, although we were treated to things like that in previous boss battles, and I wondered if that was because my controllable character was not Shulk in that moment. I was playing Sharla instead. I don't personally remember one, but maybe it's in there. The core of this boss is invulnerable, so we have to destroy some of the legs. Eventually, it flees in a cutscene. Ryan spear tackles Sharla in the air to drive her away from the snapping claws, and we kill it. Hold on. Do we kill this boss? We Do kill we, this boss. We, we kill this boss. Whether it's in the fight or in a cutscene, this boss dies because the party members that are not Shulk are granted a sense of victory and relief. From the fact that this thing is dead. Ryan goes, hey, looks like we changed the future. Shulk, on the other hand, is left feeling uneasy by this vision because this is not the Mechon in the in his visions. There was a faced, a second 
faced Mekon in this vision that was committing the murders. So uh, killing this one is not resolving the problem. Ryan comments that maybe this receiving these visions and changing the future has like a butterfly effect of they're changing all sorts of things. Different Mechon are in the area at the time. Juju stumbled upon a different fate than what was the very first one that Shulk saw. But Shulk isn't convinced that that's the case. Something's not right. And soon after... A giant Mechon shows up. It's huge. It's it's at least as big as... Was it Metal Face? It is, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I should know that. I know. I, I, I do know this. I just doubt myself because it's so silly. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that because <laughs> you, we were wrong. We this were is, wrong. We were we were oh, saying how man. we were saying how these guys are not going to talk. Nope. They're going to they're going to carry this air of mystery. Yep. I I was making statements about how their kind of elegant, uh, creative design lends itself to not necessarily as menacing as one would think of a just bad guy enemy that they want our characters to hate. But this guy shows up and just debunks everything we were talking about by opening his big, dumb mouth and by being as villainous as he possibly can and as loud as he possibly can. He is uh, hes chewing up the scene with some menacing dialogue. I've been waiting for you, Monado boy. The Mechon are in sharing their experiences with each other. They're sharing their intel. This Mechon has heard stories of the other Mechon that attacked Colony 9, their experience, and how they were waylaid by Monado Boy as they put it to each other. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm so happy that my estimation was wrong because the moment is so spectacular. We defeated the boss, but we're still unsettled because this wasn't a faced Mechon. There's something else out here, and soon enough it appears. It comes in out of the sky. It's kind of spherical in shape until it until it extracts all of its appendages. I've been waiting for you, Monado boy. And the line is delivered creepily. It's deranged. It's mechanical. It's it's evil, and it is just so good. I looked up the voice actor, Jonathan Keeble. Jonathan Keeble, A plus, dude. Mm, that was so good. So it's, good. It, yeah, it's just like it, it did everything it needed to do in that scene. Of this is these are the bad guys, you know. The, you just you feel it with the with the tone and line delivery and everything about it that you could a lot of the characters in this game have like an elegant european accent to them maybe to europeans it doesn't sound elegant at all maybe it's just our american sensibility but that said this guy delivers the menacing attitude that we would need to really hate him it's also interesting to me that Shulk has a reputation as being feared by Mechon. Because, again, I've talked about how if I were a human, a hom, with this imposing force that attacked my home, I, I don't know that I would have the confidence or the ability to just walk out into the world and start conflict with them. But to some of these Mechon, as they've been talking, they're on the back foot after this negated attack from them. 
a follow-up quote that this mechon has is the way metal face scarpered i guess that means got hurt or coward i thought you'd have been this big scary monster but look you're just a pathetic little kid now this mechon i'm pretty sure is the mechon that we saw at the end of the previous chapter definitely i that's when we started this episode i said i had a a little addendum note there they are one and the same because mm-hmm. i did the review of the footage i'm like oh that is that is the guy um Another thing that we keep saying Metal Face, Metal Face is indeed the legal name of Metal Face. It's not a moniker put on him by humans who saw a Mechon with a Metal Face because this Mechon calls him Metal Face. It is their in-organization term for him. So that is kind of mind-blowing for me. It's as meant, It's the equivalent of me calling you skin man <laughs> i don't know <laughs> uh like your legal name being skin man but also his name is mysterious face mysterious face so metal face got his name by having a metal face but all the other ones I, i'm assuming there's more mysterious face also has a metal face so he had to go above and beyond and be something more than Metal Face to get a name that wasn't Metal Face 2, right? Mm-hmm. Enigmatic Face. I have a feeling that Mysterious Face has got some irons in the fire or some plots to unravel if he is canon diegetic in-universe name for himself. What? I, I don't know. I, so diegetic is the term for... It, it's not external to the game. It's not something that we the players are... Like, it's not outside the fourth wall. It is happening inside the Oh, game. yes. Okay. So, yeah. So, Mysterious Face and Metal Face, their names are canonized. They are diegetic. They exist within the the world itself. It's That's just mind-blowing to me. That's the biggest revelation of this entire sequence. He looks awesome. If he pulled all of his appendages together, he would take the shape of a ball um, with a glowing thorax, uh, very much like... Metal Face did. Mm, uh, he has glowing red rivets and dark cherry metal armor and light green metal hands. And he wields an enormous one-handed hammer whose backside, like the claw part of a hammer, comes to a sharp point. And we engage in a battle with him. He does a leaping smash that knocks the melee heroes to the ground. I wasn't playing a melee hero in this fight. I was Sharla, and so I was attending to debuffing and healing in this fight how did you handle this fight nate he he comes off as kind of a brute character maybe in comparison to previous when i fought metal face he was just big but he was slender he was uh he had claws right claws usually are given to agility based fighters so this guy having a big hammer having a wide round frame he comes off as more brutish to me. Mm-hmm. Fighting him, definitely playing a shulk, you're incentivized to drop back and do the little dance between the side and the back. I don't know if you're, you've been switching characters and so you're not as familiar with that, but shulk's abilities gain effects on where they're delivered, whether to the back of the character and to the side. So for me, it was basically dodging some abilities 
doing the location correctly, letting Ryan tank when he could, letting Sharla uh, do her thing with the heels. But again, we're presented with this same problem of we are unable to do significant damage to him. I tried everything I could, but it, the the effect that we first had on Metal Face of not being able to do our standard damage to him was the same thing. Shulk even mentions this in in the game of it's the ones with the the metal faces that are immune to the Monado's power. Other mm-hmm. Mechon slice right through, but these ones you can't. His attacks they're they're like wide swings. He comes off as very malicious and violent in his attacks. He's not he's not a defender. He's not a tank, despite his size. He is. Uh, What's the what's the character in League of Legends that dunks on people? Darius. Yeah, Darius, the big axe. I picture a picture of mysterious face sliding in with a big axe dunk on his mm-hmm. enemies uh, when he fights. When the boss fight ends, we get a cutscene. Juju hard scrabbles away from mysterious face, and then he gets seized by his by the Mechon's green hand. Shulk 1v1s him, but he's just too fast. Um, there are smaller Mechon that are descending upon the area now, and Ryan is defending Shulk as Shulk kind of 1v1s this big Mechon trying to release Juju from his grasp. But it's not working. Shulk cries out, Why can't I use the Monado? This boss battle was uh, another one of those JRPG conventions of you have to lose the fight. There, there's no way to win it. So you ought to lose the fight to come to these circumstances to be shown how hopeless it is to engage this guy. Uh, the the same glowing Tron lights that run up and down the body of this Mechon are present as they were on Metal Face as well. So with Shulk mentioning that it, it's the one with the Metal Faces and a lot of the same design elements to the characters there's a lot we can kind of take away from there is a power at play here it's not that their metal is just really strong it's not that they're too beefy to cut through there's a i don't know if you want to call it magic because science and magic are kind of one and the same from this game but there is a supernatural or super scientific element to this creating that barrier between shulk damaging mysterious face maybe we've got to find that true monado find the true monado mysterious face is almost assured to win he's pummeling us he's swinging his axe we can't get to juju then something happens we i don't know if shulk notices this in world but we the player are shown the glowing tron lights on mysterious face covering his body they fade out And then he notes that it is now time to leave. We saw this before. We had an enemy in Colony 9, Metal Face, who seemingly had the upper hand, but then left. We, at the time, we, you and I, when we talked about it, we didn't know what prompted them to leave. We theorized that it may have been an objective that was accomplished in that Fiora died or some other unknown objective that was fulfilled upon their attack. But now I'm changing my thinking. 
the the light going out and it being time to leave tells me there is a limitation to these guys in vulnerability and so they got to come in they got to do what they got to do get in get out and do it without our heroes understanding that factor to their power yeah that could be I noticed those energy. I'm, I'm, I was having difficulty describing them. I'm glad you called them Tron lights because that's very, very akin to what they are. And yeah, there seems to be some sort of limitation. Maybe the Monado is draining that from them. Um, we'll probably learn more about it in the future. But in in between now and then, it's simply, it's simply that mysterious face. He's got to has got to go. He still has Juju in his hand. He says, time's up, little boy. I've got to go. I'm taking Juju with me. If you want him, you'll have to come to Colony 6. But you better hurry because I'm feeling hungry. He flies a thousand feet in the air and he's gathered up with all the other minor mechons, goes into jet mode, and flies away. The final shot of the chapter is a close-up of Charlotte's face where she goes, Juju. Yes, and we started... Our our first scene of this guy that we saw him was him eating a hum. And now the parting scene with him is him threatening to eat somebody we care about. So seems like uh again he's bulkier. I don't know if he's the fat family member of the Metal Face clan. Huh. But he seems to like partaking. He also transforms into a jet, which uh I've commented on in the past. The our game creators love of mechs that become jets. So I'm I'm guessing we're going to see a few more of those throughout the game. The chapter ends on a cliffhanger. There is no follow-up scene, if I recall correctly. It simply ends with that tense, unresolved moment. So I assume in the following chapter, we're going to charge over to Colony 6 and raise hell, get into trouble, get waylaid by some other sub-story of the plot i'm gonna call out that next chapter or maybe chapter six we're gonna get a big turn in the plot something gonna be made aware of something else that is super important other than just mechon flying around killing homs we need to get revenge etc save some people that that's kind of our first setup to drive us out on our adventure but i think we're gonna quickly encounter something bigger's going on right now i'm looking forward to meeting godot or at least finding out what his fate is i'm looking forward to meeting authoron the captain that was was part of the colony six defense i don't know what colony six looks like i don't know if it's built over a lake like colony nine or if it's built into a cliff or it's in a forest or if it's in a sewer um but we'll find out soon enough i think so at least Colony 9 seem to be built up around these seemingly natural anti-aircraft guns because you see the the local construction of the homes and very human architecture contrasted with something that looks a bit more high technology. And the the ether pods that we went to collect were from an era that we didn't understand, etc. So it begs the question: When we get to Colony Six, I wonder what high technology element of Bionis's body that this place was developed around—some long forgotten function that we'll be made aware of. 
you mentioned Godot. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really curious of whether there will be a reunion, if Sharla is going to welcome that reunion, <laughs> or if she's found a little bit something she's into a little bit more since her last time seeing Godot, her would-be husband. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions, recorded February 7th, 2022. We have an email, herowithathousandpotions.com, herowithathousandpotions at gmail.com. We're also on Discord and Twitter with the handle Hero with a Thousand Pots, and more forthcoming, maybe. I mean, we could have a Facebook, too, if we felt like managing it, but I don't know how well, relevant that would be. Well, Facebook just lost half their value. They're on the way out. Let's... I, I'll say we're gonna we're gonna try some other stuff out, but really our goal is to just do things that make we have fun doing. All right, uh, I think that'll do it, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. All right, and. <laughs>
the track anymore. We are just sailing through the air in our cars and we have jumped the track and we crash into the ground in this roller coaster and it's it's a medical emergency i get up i'm i'm okay glenn howerton who plays dennis is okay um rob mckelany has broken his arm uh, above the elbow and charlie's okay but then the guy who plays cricket he he gets mangled too and it was like oh my call 911 oh my god anyways podcast nightmare so we're just you know doing our thing, hanging out, being bros, hanging out at his uh, mansion, whatever. We're in the hot tub. Me and my, at at the time, now ex-wife, hanging out together in Jeff Bridges' hot tub. And he's like, oh, hey, you know what? I gotta, I, I gotta show up on Ellen today. 